Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Langston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at ReconditioningHQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. We can't grow this podcast without you, the listener, or the support of our amazing sponsors. This year, we are pleased to announce the support of Matrix Fitness, one of the largest commercial fitness brands in the world and one of the fastest growing in the industry. Matrix Fitness produces training tools that focus on improving the training experience for athletes and coaches alike. With equipment that focuses on building speed, power, and explosive performance in the most efficient manner, Matrix has partnered with some of the top sporting organizations in the world. As a global brand with local support, the Matrix performance team assists their customers with solutions, research, and training protocols so coaches can focus on what they do best, help athletes prepare for competition, and getting better. For more information, please request their sports performance package from their Canadian Director of Education, Annie.Vilnive at matrixfitness.com and mention the Leave Your Mark podcast to qualify for your 20% discount. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Derek Evely. Derek consults globally for various federations on all aspects of coach and athlete development, specializing in high performance training systems and youth development programming. He's the owner and founder of eviltracksport.com, a training information resource for coaches, trainers, teachers, and parents. Derek has been involved in the sport of athletics most of his life as both an athlete and a coach. He's been coaching for the past 35 years, 25 of them professionally, and during that time has served on numerous Canadian and British national teams, including the Olympic Games, IAAF, World Championships, Commonwealth Games, Pan American Games, and European Championships. In 2008, he was appointed to the Canadian Olympic team as a staff coach. He was also the head coach for the Kamloops Track and Field Club for 11 years, during which time he produced eight national team members, including Gary Reed, Dylan Armstrong, and Shane Neeman. In 2009, Evely was appointed National Performance Centre Director at Law Bureau for UK Athletics, leading into the 2012 Olympic Games, where he was a staff coach for Britain in the throws. During his time in Britain, Evely was involved with all aspects of athletics development for UK athletics in both development and high-performance realms. Derek is also a husband and father of three children, and I am honoured to have him on the show today. Welcome, Derek. Hey, Scott. Thanks for yeah. having me on. Yeah, it's nice to actually finally meet. I mean, I've bounced into you through uh, Stu a few times, tried to get you down at a speed thing a while back, but it didn't work out uh, timing-wise and stuff. Um, I forget why that didn't happen. Uh, I think I was traveling a lot then. What uh, What year was that? 2017? Um, I think so, 2017. Yeah, I, I was 16. in China most of the year that year, so... 
but uh, yeah. Actually, I'll so. circle back to that because one of the things you said in your your uh, email to me about uh, hating bureaucracy will will flow into that a little bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I struggle with bureaucracy. Yeah. So you grew up uh, in BC. Yeah, I grew up in Burnaby. Uh, in which, Burnaby. Uh, yeah, just outside of Vancouver. Yeah, I grew up in uh, in North, I'm North Burnaby boy. Uh, actually that's where I went to school. So, uh, I grew up, my mom and I had a house. We rented off the city there in uh, central Burnaby, right across the street from Burnaby central, which is where I eventually ended up going to high school, uh, senior high. So, okay. And what did you grow up dreaming to be? Like, did you have little aspirations as a kid, uh, to what you wanted to be or not really? Um, I always from, uh, I was highly influenced by teachers and coaches. Mm-hmm. I grew up, um, you know, an only child in a single parent household. Uh, my dad left when I was three months old. Um, they just took off, never met him until I was an adult. Wow. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, teachers were teachers and coaches were a big part of my life. I'm actually really not a big sports person. Never was. I did a lot of sports when I was a kid. I'm more, I'm more drawn to the arts, uh, music, and and I was uh, I was a graphic artist in high school. Um, but coaches, you know, I was good at tracks. So you know, I I I got into track by watch. I was watching TV one day when I was probably I think I was in I was in grade six. That's right. <laughs> and uh, I watched a documentary on Al Order. And I don't know if you remember, Bud mm-hmm. Greenspan used to do all those documentaries about mm-hmm. the Olympics and stuff. And he did one on Al Order. And I was just mesmerized by it. And I went out and the next day and I bought like a five dollar those little black rubber discs. And I taught myself how to throw. And um, so that's how I got involved. And I never had a coach until, uh, you know, I was uh, a real coach until. Uh, I became a decathlete because, you know, I just like doing all the events and track. I started with discus, but then did everything else. And, but yeah, I, I pretty much, I was pretty much self-taught. I remember I used to go to my elementary school early in the morning, take the discus with me and I would throw, uh, just, you know, it was a big, big gravel field, Westridge Elementary in North Burnaby. And I remember I was out there one day throwing, it was about 7.30 in the morning and my, great my teacher at the time grade six teacher's name was mr dewar he was in the you know he was having his coffee and cigarette in the morning and in the staff room and he was watching me and he came out and he uh i i remember he put his coffee down his cigarette down and he goes you know i think you're doing that wrong you know and and i was i was it was coming off i was throwing it uh if you want to call it that off the off the pinky of my finger it was a complete opposite of what has to happen it was it has to be released off the forefinger and uh he goes i think you and you know and that was the first bit of coaching that i ever got and uh you know from there you know i i uh i had a a mentor and my senior high school coach ken taylor uh i wasn't going to go to that school that was a that's burnaby central which is a track juggernaut in mm. in in british columbia and he's probably the most well he is the most successful high school coach in track and field in bc history if not one of the most successful in canadian history and i lived across the street from the school but i wanted to do arts and i was going to go to burnaby south 
and I'd been doing really well in track at that point. And I was standing at a bus stop going to a track meet one day, a high school track meet. Um, and he drove by in his Volvo and uh, pulled over and said, uh, where, uh, you know, asked me if I was going to the meet. And I said, yeah. And he said, we'll hop in. And so, you know, he, on the, on the ride to the meet, he talked me into going to Burnaby central rather than, mm-hmm. yeah. And then, uh, and they had a re- actually really good arts program there too. Uh, I did a lot of graphic design. I had a lot of pieces um, that were, that were uh, accepted into a traveling arts. It was like a student traveling arts uh, exhibition that they did every year. So I got a, I got a couple of scholarship offers by the time I was in uh, grade 12 uh, to Emily Carr and then, and Simon Fraser, cause I was being coached by a guy named Zenish Mahowski at the time in, in the decathlon. And uh, I had to decide in grade 12, I had to decide like, what, what am I going to do? Am I going to do track or am I going to do uh, arts? So my art teacher, Mr. Heinemans and Ken Taylor, who I still contacted, I just was texting with him yesterday, actually. Uh, he's retired now, but, um, and, uh, they took me out for lunch right before I graduated or before I had to make this decision as to where I was going to go. And they said, uh, you know, you, you need to, uh, you need to decide what you're going to do. And my art teacher said, you know, you're, you're, you're not weird enough to go to, to go. That's exactly what he said. He said, you're not weird enough to go to art school. And I said, all right, well, you know, all right, sure. And I was, you know, I, I said, okay, well, whatever. And so, uh, Zenon, my coach at the time, offered me a scholarship uh, to Simon Fraser. I went there for a semester. I, that's where I met Kevin Tyler. Actually, Kevin and I met uh, in track clubs uh, earlier in that, probably a couple of years. I think I was in grade 10 when I first met Kevin. Uh, but we became roommates uh, at Simon Fraser. And then one day we uh, decided that we, were, uh, we, we entered the World Wheelbarrow Race Championships in his hometown. <laughs> <laughs> which sounds like a joke, but it is not a joke. It was a, it's a relay, uh, a two man relay where you push your partner in a wheelbarrow. Uh, it's, it's, it's like a four by four, but with two guys. So one guy runs, you know, pushes the other guy 400 meters and you switch, then he gets in and you push him and then you do that again. So it's 400 and your only oh. break is whatever it takes your partner to run the 400 and you know, you're <laughs> bent over sucking air <laughs> He did his first lap in 67 seconds, pushing me. I was over, I was, I was pushing 200 pounds at the time. Wow. And uh, anyways, I ended up in the hospital that night, but we won. (laughs) We won and uh, we took, we took the prize money and we uh, left SFU and we flew out to Toronto and he trained at a high performance center in York. And I trained, uh, went to train with Andy Higgins at U of T. Wow. And so I've, I've had this history of running, of having these great, great teachers, mentors, coaches that have been in my life. Uh, those two in particular, and I would throw Dan Path in there afterwards, which I'm sure we'll get into at some point here. Have but, you ever wondered, um, have you ever wondered if uh, you didn't have that incidental meeting and you went to the art school, what your life would have been like had you gone that direction instead? Our sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com, is back this year with a big lineup of courses across the country and beyond. The practice of reconditioning is literally changing the way we see physical preparation. This is an approach that brings the worlds of therapy and performance together that helps you as a practitioner build more robust clients. Not just rehab injuries or train for fitness and performance, but make people more robust. Life isn't about surviving longer, it's about thriving. 
and Reconditioning HQ is offering a life mentorship program called Empower You, totally designed to help human performance professionals live their best life. After all we do for others, shouldn't we do our best work for ourselves? If you have an interest in ice hockey, ReconditioningHQ.com, Perform Better, and Matrix Fitness are bringing the best in hockey performance to Mont Tremblant, Quebec, June 27th to 28th, and it's going to be epic. Check out all of their course offerings on ReconditioningHQ.com. I'd probably be dead, to be honest with you, because I developed a, you know, I, I come from a family of addicts and alcoholics. And, uh, and I was, a, I'm an alcoholic, uh, 21 years behind me, clean and sober. And, uh, I mean, it took me a long time to, to get my shit together, but, um, but yeah, I, you know, without those, you know, there's just a few of my mentors at the time when I was really struggling at my bottom, uh, took a few years but pulled me out of it so if i hadn't met those i'm not sure i would have met anybody like that in in the art so i probably you know they probably saved my life <laughs> so um yeah with, without that i uh yeah they uh they had a huge impact on me particularly taylor ken taylor andy higgins and dan pap were hugely influential uh not just as a coach but as a person like really when you when you self reflect to your childhood, were you a, a kid that was kind of and maybe still are in some ways obsessive in the sense that you're obsessed with maybe drawing or art, and then obsessed with you know the the discus or whatever it was, and and sort of that was where your energy went into, and you kind of focused on that. Is that kind of the kid you were? Well, I grew up as I said, an only child in a single mm-hmm. parent household. My mother worked was a clerk for the uh, uh, for the federal government. Uh, in fact, when my old man left, he, he walked out when I was three months old. I don't, just damn, not really sure what happened. <laughs> it's kind of like I'm. It's kind of like I'm leaving, and she said, "Good," and that was about <laughs> it. Uh, and uh, she went into she went into court and said, uh, "You know, I, I don't want anything from him. He just can't show his face." And so uh, that's what he did. He, um, yeah, excuse me here. He um, he honored that, which was I think the best for both of us because he ended up uh you know he's a severe alcoholic and drank himself to death later on wow. um but he um but anyways uh she walked into uh you know this is back what is it, this we're talking 1965 here so she walked into a government office looking for a job and uh she told me that the guy uh that hired her his name was kit uh he walked in fired somebody Pulled a girl off her desk, said, you're fired, and gave my mom the job because she needed it so bad. You know, back in the day when you could do things like that. So I owe that guy <laughs> that as well. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, anyways, a uh, bit of a tangent there. But, um, yeah, I uh, – um, where was I going with that again? Well, you, you said you, you grew up in a, a single-parent home, and I had asked you oh, about yes, sort of your I obsession, yes, right, obsession right, yeah. with art or with – you know. I spent a lot of time alone. That was the point, right? So, because my mom was working all the time. And not only did I spend a lot of time alone because of our family situation, but where she would drop me off at my grandparents, which was in the other side of Burnaby. And I actually went to elementary school, not in my neighborhood. So, and I would, you know, I started taking the bus to school. It was like an hour long bus ride. I had to change. I started doing that when I was in grade five or six, which... Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we're, we're pretty loose with our kids that way nowadays, but I don't think a lot of people do that, let their kids do that. 
these days, right? Where we're so, you know, so worried about them, but um, they, uh, you know, and so I was alone a lot and on weekends alone a lot. There were, we lived where the, this house was. I had no, there was no real neighborhood. Um, so I spent a lot of time alone. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. I, I just got into stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, um, some of it good, some of it bad. And mm-hmm. so uh, I did a lot of time drawing on my own, um, uh, listening to me. I was a big music fan. I never, I tried to pick up a few instruments, but it never stuck. But I was, uh, you know, really into listening mm-hmm. and uh, and drawing. Yeah. And then the discus that was, you know, and from there, you know, I play, I tried every sport, soccer and all that. But yeah, I, I became, you know, when I get into something, I get really into it. And so, um yeah, and that was uh, kind of my yeah. That, that's where I'm segueing to. So you 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 become relatively obsessive about athletics in some way, shape, or form. And this I'm I'm thinking is in your teens into your twenties, and you become competitive in it. Um, is like what's your success like? Or do you have success in that? And and that spawns your your coaching. Like how do you go from your your athletic career to your coaching career in essence i was totally it was, it was totally natural mm-hmm. but the plan was to teach so okay. i was um i i was uh yeah, i was a relatively successful athlete i was a big fish in sort of a small pond and mm-hmm. when kevin and i uh jumped on the planes we got on and i think we you know we took all that money and invested in one way tickets flew to toronto you know, I was, I was like, uh, uh, I was like the top junior in the country sort of thing, but I wasn't, you know, I, I ended up going to that center. Andy let me into the center, but I was definitely the low man on the totem pole there. I was, I never scored really high. A lot of that has to do with my behavior and stuff mm-hmm. and my, my lifestyle. But I don't think even if I had got all that together, I, I would never have been, I was on one national team as an athlete. I don't, I would never have been a great athlete. I was, I was a, in that environment, I was a, I was a hacker. I was the guy that showed up every day and worked hard. And I was a, basically a training partner for Dave Steen and Mike Smith and Greg, Greg Haydenlock and, you know, guys that were far better than I was. So, um, but I, you know, again, you know, I mean, Andy had a huge impact on me. I mean, I love that guy. He just passed away last year, unfortunately, but, um, he, um, you know, uh, I wanted to be like those mentors and I, I was, I mean, I was ready to coach, just give up track and coach when I was 17 or 18. Right. And I just, you know, I, I love training. I like competing, but I love training more. Um, I was a good competitor, uh, but you know, just wasn't, uh, I was a nervous competitor, but yeah, it was just, the plan was to become a teacher because back then in my, in our sport, there were no professional coaches in Canada. Uh, it just, just wasn't a career path. Anybody really considered. Um, it's kind of like, I was just listening to one of your podcasts, the, the MMA trainer, um, mm. oh God, uh, Martin Rooney, how many Martin Rooney's are there out there in the world? God, <laughs> anyways, the guy from New Jersey was born in Bon Jovi's hometown, right? He, uh, you know, my, a, a lot of his stories kind of similar to mine. I mean, it was, it was a career path. Every, my, I, uh, I graduated from university or I came, went back to Vancouver and a couple of, uh, I was planning on, on going to teacher's college at UBC, picking up a few courses I needed. And I got a phone call from an athlete who had heard I was in town and asked me if I'd coach uh, him and his four buddies. 
So I instantly just gave up everything. I was working in a bar a couple of nights a week. I kept that. I was living in my grandparents' garage. It was a, actually it was my, my grandfather's workshop, which had no heat, you know, that kind of thing. I was living there. I did that for two years. Just I wanted to coach these guys and I was going to do whatever I had to do to keep doing it. And then I started getting a lot of pressure from my family, people taking me, you know, off to the sides and, you know, like, what are you doing? It's time for you to get a, you know, get a job, get a life. You got no woman, you got no this, you got no that. And, And I didn't, I had nothing. And I was barely making ends meet and, you know, still drinking at the time. So that was a big issue too. And they, um, uh, and then I was, you know, it was really becoming an issue. And then I got a phone call one day, uh, out of the blue from a guy, uh, that was uh, a parent of an athlete in Kamloops, British Columbia. And they were, the government there was, uh, starting, uh, a guy named Bob Bear Park, uh, started this, uh, this regional sport program, which is, it's now become sort of the Pacific sport whole thing. But back then it was called the interior regional sport program. And, they hired me as their uh, full-time coach. I had zero certification, but this guy called me up. I, I was moving my mother out of his, uh, out of her home one day, and literally, I was just about to unplug the phone. It's another one of those moments, and it rang, and I picked it up, and so I, I'm looking for Derek Evely, and I was like, "Yeah, this is him." And it was Barry Barry Adkins, who was a a martial artist in Kamloops, who had coached some world champions, and that good, really good guy. Uh, he was president of the club. He said, you know, like I'm looking for somebody that's young and ambitious and I don't care about certification or anything like that. And I was, cause I said, I'm saying, you know, I'm not certified. I have no, you know, I'm just a guy coaching. And he was, no, I don't care about that. I ended up getting the job. And so at, in 95 and I moved up there January 4th, 1995 camels in the middle of winter. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Um, and, uh, I remember the date. It was also the day my dog was born. My dog, Bubka. I remember I got him a few, like five weeks or six weeks later, but anyways, uh, and I was, you know, this was all from money. It was legacy from the Canada games that had been uh, there a couple of years before. And, uh, you know, I spent 11 years there and that's where I sort of honed my coaching chops. And, um, that's how I ended up. So I I just gave up the teaching path and ended up in coaching. I was the only full-time professional. Now I wasn't making a lot of money, but I was, was full-time professional private coach. I was the only one in the country at that time in athletics, every, anyone else. And there was even there, there's only a handful were in universities. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, what were you attracted uh, to, and co- what what, were you, what attracted you to coaching, and what and previously to teaching, and also off of the back of that, what do you see as the difference between the two, or do you? I want to take a minute to connect you to our newest sponsor, Zenkai Sports, who are here with a question for you: Why do we sweat? Our body is perfectly designed to cool us down, but most apparel companies use moisture-wicking fabrics that remove our sweat, which makes us overheat faster and actually hurts our performance. Zenkai uses cutting-edge technology that repels sweat and other liquids. Zenkai apparel lets the sweat stay on your skin, keeping you cool for longer and repelling odor-causing bacteria. This means Zenkai apparel can be worn 10, 15, 20 times with no washing required. 
This lowers your carbon footprint and saves money, so you can be a hero with your planet and your family. Join the revolution for better apparel technology. What's in your ZNA? We've partnered with Zenkai, so if you head over to www.zenkaisports.com and use the discount code LYM20, you'll get 20% off your entire order. Um, well, I think there's, there's, uh, there's differences in terms of the amount of contact and the impact that you can have on athletes. I mean, coaches, at least the way I've done it, you know, you, you, you get far more intimate with an athlete, um, especially the ones that are, uh, you know, the more successful ones, the ones that you end up spending a lot of time with. I had created a really good group there. Um, a really, really special group that a number of uh, athletes came out of that went on, a couple of them went on to win major international medals. You, you, you named the, the, the three there. Um, but I had a, a lot of other ones that did really, really well there as well. And um, yeah, I mean, I, that's, you know, I was, uh, I was successful in that regard. I, you know, I mean, I like to think I had a, an impact on some of them. Um, you know, I, I hope I did. Uh, I think the difference with uh, teaching is you you cover way more ground, right? You you cover way more ground in terms of number of uh, people that you can impact, young people that you can impact. But I think the quality of impact with coaching on, on in general, on average, is probably higher. Like you can you can have a you know because you have you, there's so much more one on one interaction. I mean, Dylan Armstrong. I spent so much time with Dylan from the age of 14 to 25 alone in hotel rooms because we had no money. So, I mean, you know, they had enough money to pay me and that was about it until I, until I developed that fundraiser that went kind of crazy that brought Bonner Chuck to, to Canada, um, which was the uh, manure sale. I mean, we, we had no money. So everywhere we went, we, I drove in my little shitbox pickup truck and him and I stayed together. Same with Shane, same with Gary. I mean, it was, you know, so we, we became very tight. Mm. Um, you know, and, but, you know, I was a bit of a disaster as well. I was still struggling with my own issues. And so I wasn't always the easiest guy to deal with, um, to say the least. And I, you know, I think I probably impacted negatively our relationship, uh, with some of those guys, uh, which, you know, it's probably one regret I have, but, um, but I think I did in my own sort of white knuckling way, I think I did good work with them. Mm. Um, I, uh, you know, it's funny. I was telling somebody this not long ago. I, I thought at that time that every other coach in the world was doing the same thing I was doing. Like I thought that they were, you know, I thought they were, you know, I, I was afraid of falling behind. So I, I studied like, I mean, being, that's the advantage of having a, of employing a young full-time coach is you can, you can, you have so much more time to hone your skills. So I was just consuming information everywhere I could. Um, and I was developing plans and I thought everybody was doing this. Turns out I was wrong for the most part, but I learned that when I went on to my next few jobs at the CACC and then in Britain that, but so I was like, man, I got to, if I got to do this, I got to do this right. And so I really got into theory and methodology and, and, uh, youth development models and things like that. And I helped, I worked a, a lot with Ishvan Bali, who was a, uh, uh, you know, big influence on me doing the LTAD model with a couple other coaches. 
in Canada for the Canadian system in, in athletics. So, I mean, I was really involved in that. And, you know, I had 11 years. I was sort of like really, you know, putting things together. I think it worked out well. And, um, you know, uh, but it was weird. We were so isolated in Kamloops. It was a really unique situation in that I was full time. I, I didn't share a track with anybody. I didn't have to ask, you know, it was, it's not like it was different back there then than it is now. We, we trained everybody in this bunker, this uh, World War II uh, ammunition bunker that uh, that the city loaned us. I was Dylan told they, me about that place. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it was crazy. So, and 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 that's actually a really interesting story. So, during the during the Second World War, they you know there was this fear that the Japanese were going to bomb the West Coast. So what they did was they Kamloops was far enough inland that they figured that the the planes at the time couldn't get in and couldn't get in bomb and get back. So they used Kamloops as a depot, an ammunition depot. And they, they built like 45 of these concrete bunkers. And I still remember the, you know, it's, it was 81 feet long and had two rooms in it with a, with archways that you could walk through. So it was essentially one big room with a wall down the middle that you could walk in it with arches. You could walk in and out of 17 feet high, solid concrete cinder block and concrete the 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 roof was four feet thick concrete they told me okay uh they had berms they had berms that were built around them to stop you know the you know any shells from hitting them. Uh, and they stored ammunition in, in them and the idea was is if they needed ammunition in vancouver on the west coast they would just because counts on the river they just haul these things haul all the ammunition down the river and there there you go well course it never happened so the city had like 40 or 45 of these and they they stored stuff in it they just junk like just crap that was i mean there was stuff in there there's an old stagecoach in there and i and i yeah and and you know uh cots for various events that were like you know 50 years old and stuff like that and it was all it was mouse infested it stunk and anyways i was in there one day they they, they, they it had a door it was about a three-quarter inch thick steel solid steel door you had to open and anyways and uh i was in there one day get they sent me in there to get something that i was and i was looking at this place i'm going oh, this you know and so i went to the parks and rec director byron mccorkle at the time i said hey i said listen if you guys aren't you know there's just shit in there like why don't you let us let us you know let us take it over so he said yeah sure if you're if you're willing to clean it so he had it emptied and i set about cleaning it most of it myself with uh some volunteer help and anyways and we we actually uh it was just enough room to set up pole vault mats we did pole vault drills i built a runway we had a runway going down in the middle of it uh it was our weight room it was our throwing room it was everything so for about there were various bunkers that we went in and out of through there but that was there was one main one that was and um you know, you, you most, if, if you didn't get to the gate on there was about 150 meter walk to get into this place, which in the winter, nobody went into. So there wasn't plowed or anything. If you didn't get to the gate at work time of workout, you had to walk in there. Right. So taught everybody to be on time. And, uh, and you would, uh, like it was, it was, it became a really interesting environment because mm -hmm. there was no bathrooms, there was no heat, there was no, just, just electricity. Cause all it was meant to be was to store ammunition. Right. So a couple mm -hmm. 60 watt bulbs and that's it, but we made it our own. We spruced it up and, and, um, man, the work that got done in there was unbelievable. 
like mm-hmm. Dylan and that crew, Gary and those guys, they set a standard that, you know, I didn't, I didn't have to motivate anybody. Those guys were so self-motivated and anybody that wanted to join you, the moment you walked in there, you knew there was no fucking around. Like there was, you know, and so I had this group of athletes, 14 to at one point I had almost 50 athletes that I was coaching and all different events. You walked in there and I had them all, they would come in in waves based on their age and their event. And, and I had this system of training that I, I described in one of the videos on my site um, that I stole from Dan and, you know, it was a well-oiled machine and, and uh, you know, and, and like, again, I thought everybody was doing that. <laughs> Turned out they weren't. And so I developed all these skills, particularly in the area of theory and methodology. And then Bondarchuk came along. At the most recent 2019 World Junior Hockey Championships in the Czech Republic, Team Canada's number one goalie was Nico Dawes. Nico is a great story. Heading into his NHL draft year, he was not on the Canadian team's radar. In the summer of 2019, Nico trained hard with the support of the great team at Shield Performance in Burlington, Ontario. He built up his body armor and lost 25 pounds. He came to the Guelph Storm camp in the best shape of his life and earned the number one spot for the defending OHL champs. And then earned his spot with Team Canada on one of the hockey world's largest stages. One of the tools used by Nico was the Matrix Fitness S-Force Performance Trainer. The S-Force is a no-impact, weight-bearing training tool that can improve fast-twitch muscle fiber, increase explosive performance, and support many conditioning objectives. Matrix Fitness produces training tools that focus on improving the training experience for athletes and coaches alike. For more information, please request the Matrix Fitness Sports Performance Package from their Canadian Director of Education, Annie.Villeneuve, at matrixfitness.com. And mention the Leave Your Mark podcast to qualify for your 20% discount. Yeah, tell and me the story about the, the manure sale to get bondage. I, I, didn't, I didn't know this story. This should be so, interesting. <laughs> so, so what happened was I had been my, – the, the, the manure sale is not my idea. It was Ken Taylor's idea. He had done that for years uh, at Central, and, and he made a – it was a high school fundraiser that he did every year. He just came up with it one day, thought, hey, I'll – because he lived, he lived in Langley, and when he lived in Langley, bought his house in Langley, which is even further outside of Vancouver. It was farmland back then. So his neighbors – he had a farm, and all his neighbors – so he were farmers. And so he would, he conned them into giving him manure. He'd bring it into the, the burbs, the actual bedroom community of, of, uh, of Burnaby at the time. And they went, sold it, right? Because for gardens and they delivered it. So, and he made, I think the best year he ever had was about 25 grand he made in a, in a weekend. And that, that funded his, a trip to Oregon every year. So if you wanted to go to Oregon, you had to work in the manure. All right. So I'd been trying to talk the executive of the club that I was in Kamloops. I'd been trying to talk them into this. I said, listen, I got this idea. And they would, they literally would laugh. At me. Like they, like, like they pretty much gave me free reign to do whatever I wanted to do, but they, they were just, nah, no, nah, we're not, you know, nah, blah, blah, blah. It never worked. Blah, blah, blah. Honestly. And then one day I just said, fuck it, I'm doing it. And I went out and I, I found a, uh, uh, there was a horse riding, uh, therapeutic horse riding stable or something. And I conned them into giving me their manure because no, everyone just, nobody knows what to do with it. Right. <laughs> and, uh, I literally went out and bought, uh, you know, garbage bags, plain, normal garbage bags and, uh, said, okay, 
everybody show up this day, all the athletes, and they showed up with shovels. We shoveled them into bags and put an ad in the paper, and we made three grand in a weekend, right? So then, of course, with my obsessiveness and my 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 need to organize the fuck out of everything, I uh, <laughs> over the next year, I I really I I really invested in this and uh, you know kept everybody's addresses and everything. And then we went to door-to-door deliveries on the next year. We made 18 grand that second year. Okay. Well, over the next seven years, we ended up making, we, the last three years we made some anywhere between 45 and $53,000 in a weekend selling manure. I mean, it was ridiculous. Like it was like, um, the biggest year we, we had 1100 deliveries one year in Camelot. That's incredible when you think about it. Right. And it was, uh, I have pictures that I, some pictures from back then. I mean, you went these massive mounds of manure surrounded by people shoveling like crazy. We ended up getting the local jail to, to use it. Their inmates would do it and we, we ended up doing the bagging and we would pay them, you know, 25 cents a bag or something. Anyway, so this thing grew. And in a, around the fourth or fifth year that it would have been early, uh, around 2001, 2002, I get this email one day from uh forwarded to me from judy armstrong who's dylan's mom who was a president and she goes here uh you deal with this uh, it's just you know she just someone just sent it to me or to her because she was a president right well it's this guy named igor shibarev who i had no idea who he was turns out he's an nhl hockey player played for new jersey but he was married to bondachuk's daughter i didn't know this at the time course and he he doesn't tell me who it is he just sends his email says hi i i'm you know i would like i'm looking for a job for my father-in-law he did a a google search or a search i don't even know if google was around back then but anyways he did a search on hammer canada came up with our with with our website sent the email i thought it was a buddy of mine named glenn mcatee who was a a a really good friend and 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 a great coach in his own right uh, at Clemson University he, but he's from my neighborhood and I thought it was him because him and I fuck around with each other we, we send we do the we play these jokes all the time and and I sent him an email and I said yeah that's really funny but anyways in the email from Igor it said I'm looking for uh you know job for my father-in-law here's his resume he doesn't say who it is but the moment I looked at it I knew who it was because I'd studied a lot of Bondarchuk stuff for years right so I sent him an email. He replies. He goes, well, it wasn't me, man. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I called the guy. Turns out it's legit. Well, one thing leads to another. And we actually turned him down at the time because we didn't have the money at, at that time. We didn't think we had the money. But the manure sale went from like three grand the first year, 18, 36, I think 43. And, you know, and then all of a sudden we had so much money at the end of the year, we, we didn't know what to do with it. We, I, we actually walked into a dealership in Kamloops at the end of one manure sale and paid cash for a 15, brand new 15 passenger E350 Ford. Okay. And so we, we actually turned Bonnertrack, uh, uh, Igor down and said, no, look, we just don't have the money. I'm the only, you know, they can barely afford to pay me. Well, then after a year later, I, I said to, to Judy, uh, Dylan's mom, I said, well, why can't we do this? Like we have the money we're looking for, you know, we had this cause we're nonprofit. We had to spend it. We couldn't, you know, and they didn't want to do it. She didn't want to do it. The executive didn't want to do it. And I'm like, look, you, we, we cannot pass up on this opportunity. Let's just 
budget it, figure out what we can afford. He can live in my basement. I renovated my basement. I, I had an apartment down there. I booted the guy out uh, or convinced him to leave. Um, and uh, I, I, I cleaned it up, renovated it a bit. And uh, we just said, here, here's, this is what we're offering you. It comes with a, comes with a free apartment or, you know, and uh, he took it. We were shocked. We were, I was stunned. He said, yeah, I'll do it. But then what happened is, uh, he, you know, the, it took him a year or two to kind of, to kind of get there because he had had a heart attack and his health wasn't good. And he wanted to, it was before the 20, 2004 Olympics. But anyways, and he had an athlete he wanted to see through that. But so it took about two or three years before he actually landed in counts, but he landed on the day of the manure sale in 2005. It was like April 4th or 5th or something like that. And I literally had to go to the airport in that van that we bought, which was a couple of years old by then, uh, full of manure, because we use it as a manure delivery truck, pick him and Igor up, drive him to my house, and, and I'm covered in shit, right? Like, I'm covered in <laughs> Literally. <with> mushroom manure. <laughs> Literally. Like, and he, uh, you know, and I, I just said, here, look, I don't, we, we don't have time to chat too much, I, but I'll come, you know, I'll come back later tonight. So at the end of that day, you know, I just dropped him off, and there he is, get get settled i come back in at 10 30 at night go to check on him the door to, from uh, to enter the apartment in my basement flies open he's like daddy 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 book 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 we write book so his english wasn't good so i spent the next you know i was there for about another eight ten months i think something like that and uh before i left i ended up leaving um and um going to work for kevin up in edmonton but him and i wrote a book together in our basement every day uh, between the two workouts. We had a morning workout and an afternoon workout. He took over Dylan's training and that's how I got to learn his system. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote this book and I thought it was, a uh, you know, uh, it was painstaking because he literally could only speak about 10 words of English. So it was very difficult and he would write it out. I've told this story many times, but he would write it out in Russian handwriting every night, four pages. He did four pages a day. Then what he would do is he would directly translate from using a Russian English dictionary, Eng- uh, English to, you know, he would, he would just translate the words, right? Then he would come in the next morning after workout, we'd have about a three or four hours in between. I set up an office in the basement and he would go here, right? And he thought, well, it's perfect English. We'll just, you know, there, there, that's the book. Well, I'm like, this is gobbledygook. Like you could not understand a word of but there was enough there that, you know, so we, we would spend, it took about three hours. We spent three hours a day for about six, seven months writing. And actually it sounds impossible, but it actually worked out really well because uh, I found out later because it forced me to, I mean, we, we, we had to work. It was such, it was, it was, it was so painstaking working out the concepts and ideas that we really, I mean, I really slowly started to put it together and then he had me write charts. And when I started to write the charts, that's how I figured it out or that's how I put it all together. And so anyways, so what happened was, but we, we, it it was, you know, him and I fought like crazy because he, because he thought I was just some, all I was to some degree, I was some podunk coach in the middle of nowhere that knew shit. Right. But I'd actually was really quite well educated in theory and methodology because it was my passion and my hobby at the time. And there was no way to convey that to him because we couldn't speak the same language. We had nobody. We had nobody around. Igor just left that day when he dropped him off and there was nobody to translate. 
So, you know, we had him and I had to force it out and he would be, no, 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 no. And I would say, <laughs> and I'd say, no, this is, I know what you're trying to say. This is what you're trying to say. No, no, no. We'd fight. And then fuck, finally, I, we, we were like, fuck it. I'm not doing this anymore. And we both had enough of each other. And we decided, you know, in a friendly way, we just, no. but so I shelved that book. And never looked at it again until about eight years later when Martin Bingus, or have you ever, you ever interviewed Martin who has the, the HMMR podcast? He's got a really good podcast. He's, he's a U.S. guy trained with Bonner Chuck after I'd left, uh, has become a good friend, but he, he does a really good job. Anyways, him and I were talking a couple of years ago and he, uh, and I was telling him about this book and he said, well, Hey, can I see it? I said, yeah, if I have it, and, you know, so I, I dug it up, I had it and I started reading this thing and I'm going, Oh my God it actually makes sense because the problem with Bonnerchuk is everything he's ever written sucks in translation. The, the, some, some of the latest stuff that the, uh, that, uh, that the Joseph Johnson has put out is pretty good. There's a couple, you know, but I've talked to the translators and they say, he's just, he just, he's very hard to translate. So, and He'd been sending after him and I stopped. He was sending all of his stuff to Russia to get translated, paying like dirt cheap prices for shitty translators. And so he's come out with these books that, if you know what to look for, they're very valuable. And if you just look at the charts, are they're worth having, but they don't really they they don't explain things very well. And mm. and but this did. And so I was looking at it, going, oh wow, so. I thought, well, this needs to get out there. So, because I have so many people coming to me asking about Bonnerchuk at that point, it was driving me nuts. And so <laughs> this is after I'd moved back from the UK and, and I thought, oh, I'm just going to do, I'm just going to make a course and do a website. And that's what I've done. And so the, the book that him and I were writing was sort of an overall training. It had all of his different, each chapter was, you know, one was on periodization, one was on transfer. And now he's, uh, you know, one was on uh, classifications, one, you know, and now he's done different books on each one of those. So, so I got this all around education, uh, unique one of a kind education on how one of the greatest minds in the history of sport thinks. And so, you know, uh, uh, you know, so anyway, it was just one of these really, really weird things that kind of, that kind of worked right. out. And so, you know, and so, and since, and since I've done the site, he's all on board now because, you know, I, I share the revenue with him. It doesn't make a lot these days, but it's, uh, but he's really happy with it. So, but at the time he just thought us dumb shit. Right. So it was was really, uh, you know, anyways, and I, and it's still a learning process for me. There have been points where I thought I knew, you know, I understand the system in, in, in its entirety now, but there have been points where I was like, you know, because you, you have to, you, you can't get it directly from the horse's mouth in a very digestible, simple way. So I had what I knew from this, from the writing of the book, talking to athletes, getting examples. And it's so individual, it's such an individualized system that going to the athletes is good, but it problematic because mm-hmm. each one of them will have a different experience. And so you, you, you know, so anyway, so it all worked out. 
Here again with another word from our sponsors, Zenkai Sports, who want to let you in on a little secret. Performance apparel hasn't changed much in the last 20 years. Most apparel is still based on moisture-wicking synthetics, which not only make you more overheat faster, but are toxic for your body and the environment. Synthetics don't biodegrade, so that stinky workout shirt you have to throw out after six months, it lasts for thousands of years in landfills. Zenkai is the only cotton-based training apparel on the market, keeping your body safe from those scary petroleum-based synthetics found in most workout gear and giving you that extra edge when it counts. Be a part of the solution and join the revolution for better apparel technology at www.zenkaisports.com. What's in your ZNA? For 20% off your entire order, please use the discount code LYM20. So what what uh, precipitates you leaving then? You you have another opportunity? I got pissed you... off with Dylan one day. I got fucking pissed off, man. I was like, <laughs> Dylan and I were like father, son, slash brother, brother, older brother, younger brother. And, you know, like I said, uh, you know, I got sober in that period. But before that, I, I was, you know, even when after I got sober, I was a bit of a dick. But I was a real dick when I was drinking. And so... It, uh, and, and he is impossible. He knows it. You know, he's, he's a good guy. He's coaching now and he's doing a really good job. I I always said, Dylan, I said, man, you are going to be a really good coach when you, when you, when you decide to coach because he has such a good eye. I've never, he has such a good eye, like for technique. It's, it's quite a, it's quite unbelievable actually. And he's had that right from the beginning. I remember him seeing things and going, Holy dude, Dylan, you know, um, but you know, you know, I, me being so anal and so organized and I had to be with, with that situation, we had no money. And I, you know, I, at one point we had 150 athletes in this club, 50 of which I coached directly. I coached everybody over the age of 14 in every event. And so I had to have things organized and, and, you know, Dylan's not the most organized guy in the world. So this, this creates a lot of tension between us. (laughs) And one day, you know, and, and it's not, has really has little to do with Dylan because he was, um, you know, that was just a straw that broke the camel's back. But basically 11 years of being the only employee in a volunteer organization that, mm. uh, well, the last 10 months it was me and Bonnerchuk, but being the only employee and running everything just, just took its toll on me. I just couldn't do it anymore. Uh, and I just up and walked out one day. I just said, fuck it. I just up, you know, and, and, and I didn't want to, and I was hoping they were going to, you know, but you know, they said, no, we've had enough of you too. <laughs> and so they said, <laughs> they said, well, no, you, yeah, no, no, this, I'd done that before. Right. And, uh, and this time they were like, no, nah, I think it's time you moved on. And I was like, all right, and I just met my wife and she'd moved in with me and, so I called up Kevin and I said, uh, hey, man, I quit. And he said, I'll hire you right now. He said, just get your ass up here as soon as you can. And he had just started there. And I went out. I said, okay, L- listen to this. I said, okay. We, we, uh, my wife and I were living up at this, uh, on this lake at the time, way out in the middle. It's called Pinatan Lake. It's half hour, 40 minutes out of Camelos or so, way up in the mountains, 3,000 feet up. We had, a, we had a little cabin that we lived in up there. It had actually a general store and we had just got this puppy. And so I walked, I walked the dog to the store. I took a wrong turn and I got lost for eight hours in the, in the, in the woods in a foot and a half of snow with, uh, with just a pair of regular shoes on. And, uh, I was like, Oh my God. And, and the only thing that saved me was this dog, this other dog tagged along 
I literally thought I was, I was about to bed down for the night cause it was getting dark. And I, and it turns out I was, I was miles and miles and miles away from, from home. Didn't know. I just completely got disoriented. And, uh, I hear this truck and it's the owners of this dog looking for the dog. And they saved my ass, man. They brought me back in. But anyways, that's, a, that's a, another, uh, <laughs> I, I tend to go off on tangents. Sorry. But anyways, <laughs> so I figured, okay, you know, I got home and, uh, you know, I, I phoned Kevin and I said, yeah, okay, I'm coming. <laughs> I've had enough of this place. I don't want to live out in the woods either. So, uh, and uh, yeah, so I went to CACC. I was there for four years. And, and all I did there was sit at a desk and study study great coaching practice and methodology in that and um yeah so uh and then that led to britain kevin got the job in britain turned around hired me very cool before i go into the britain experience i'm going to read your from my little book the day you were born your purpose so you were june 2nd right yeah <clears throat> you were a well, gemini that i asked for my date of birth okay yeah i have this book called the day you were born it mixes yep. numerology and astrology and oh, my wife your love that. Yeah. so your purpose is to use the feelings and imagination of others to open you up to your own creativity without avoiding the direct experience and the truth whenever i have to choose between two evils i always like to try the one i haven't tried before may west now, doesn't she make it sound like fun? The two evils for the Gemini 2 are mind and emotion. They both try to keep the person from a direct experience and from the truth. When mind and emotion work together, logic directs the creative spirit to action and doesn't allow it to wallow in self-absorption. But when mind and emotion oppose each other, one pulls the other out of its chair. The moon is intuitive, emotional, and eccentric. Mercury is cool and mental with the calm common touch gene wilder exhibits the eccentricity of the moon and his characters team team with mel brooks and the producers and blazing sandals insanity reached new levels of mass appeal bill walsh the 49ers field boss said of quarterback joe montana june 11th he is one of the coolest competitors one of the greatest instinctive players this game has ever seen i think he's just getting started instinct is the gift that will serve the gemini too and everything they do Mercury moon people can have distinctive physical features like Bob Hope's nose, Stacy Keach's hair lip, and Gene Wilder's bug eyes. Denying emotions can create physical or mental problems for the Gemini too. We'll leave it at that. Loners by nature, they fear having the love they so desperately desire. Yeah. I don't know if that resonates <laughs> with you at all. But. Yeah, <laughs> totally, totally. I mean, my, uh, yeah, I mean, I have, I have this, um, I've always had this sort of split, right? Which is the creative side, uh, which has really helped me a lot in coaching. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, and, and as the more and more, or the older and older I get, and the more and more experience I have, the more I realize how important that is uh, and how, how well it has served me. Um, but I also have this crazy um, um mind for systems and seeing trends and patterns and mm. objectivity, right? Like those are two polar opposite things. And so, and I'm very, very extreme in both. And, you know, uh, in my personality, in my, my life, that creates a lot of issues, right? I mean, imagine trying, imagine being like that and having kids, right? Like I just, I drive my, my family crazy with trying to organize everything and they just, ugh leads to a lot of conflict to say the least, but, 
But on the other hand, I also, you know, uh, all my kids are very, they're growing up like me. They're very independent. They're very, they're very creative. They're big time creative thinkers, especially my oldest, uh, who's a musician. And and so it's, uh, you know, it's really, you know, that's served me well. The problem is, is, is that, you know, I, I, you know, it's also served me well professionally in that, uh, you know, I served on all those teams, you know, actually, you know, you said you mentioned the Olympics in 20 in 2008. That's a great example because I was named to my first Olympic team. I'm very proud of that. It was going to represent Canada. Then I got pissed off one day because they, the, the, you know, Glenn Roy and another guy made a decision regarding the relay, which I long realized I was, I was in charge of. And, uh, I, you know, I told him to fuck off and, and, uh, and resigned from the team just on a, you know, just a, piss on I'm not going and they were like okay see ya so (laughs) but I was I was you know they you know and and uh, on a lot of those teams I never really fit in you know uh, personality wise I was always kind of doing my own thing so you know and that's kind of antithetical to the sort of the Canadian uh, you know trend or the Canadian way of thinking but I was a good utility guy Right. Like I was I, I could cover so many bases on a team that I was a good guy to have because, you know, you didn't have to bring a coach for every single event. You could bring me. I could cover four or five events and let the other coaches specialize in what they wanted to do. So I was valuable, but I was a pain in the ass. Mm. And so and that's that's kind of the, the dichotomy that I've always, you know, struggled. Did, with. did it take you a long time to recognize like I would imagine back in the day when you were a little bit more mavericky as you sort of, sort of describe it, you know, when you look back at that, when, when did you discover um, yourself in some sense that you recognized that as a, a strength and a weakness in some sense and recognized your call it culpability in your own situations or circumstances back in the day? Is that something you've gone through more yeah. self evaluation uh, October 5th, 1998. So this day I quit drinking. Mm. So, and the day I quit drinking, well, I think it was around then because I, uh, it was such a blur. Uh, but, um, the one thing that, you know, the one thing I learned about getting sober was I had to be honest until I was honest with myself and really, uh, uh, you know, take a good, honest look, a very good, honest Honest, and when I said honest, I mean objective in the extreme. Look at myself. Uh, there's no way that was going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. So, and I woke, woke up that morning and and uh, uh, you know um, spent five days in my house. Didn't leave. Didn't leave for five days. I was too just too, <laughs> too messed up. Except emailing uh, Dan, who was a. Uh, had become a very good friend and just somebody I confided in and he talked me through it. I still have, I, I, I just, you know, we, we, we just moved to Chicago and I, I, I've gotten rid of so much stuff, but I have a folder of a lot of those emails that I printed off. And I, I, I came across him when we moved. And I said, Oh my God, like, you know, it was, it was unbelievable, but he, he, you know, he was just there for me, just sending me emails saying, hang in there, hang in there, man. You know, give me a lot of, good advice but that became and i've just really realized this over the last five or six years well maybe the last 10 years uh that taught me to be objective 
Like mm-hmm. it taught me and it, that transferred into my coaching. Like I am, I mean, if, you know, I don't have, you know, I got a lot of weaknesses, holes in my coaching, but the two things I'm really good at, I think is I notice trends. It's this part of my, well, I, I notice trends. I'm and the creative part of course helps, but I'm good at seeing patterns, putting systems together, that kind of thing that, and I'm good at being objective. Mm. I'm good at looking at things and saying, okay, like, and I used to be really bad at it. Okay. Like, you know, I used to be really bad at it. If an athlete had a bad performance, I just blame the athlete, which is a fucking cancer these days in coaching. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's just, but now the first thing I do rather than pointing the finger out, I point the finger in and I say, Mm -hmm. okay, what did I do? Where is the flaw in the program? Where is the, where is the weakness and how am I going to fix this? That's now, of course, there's times when it is the athlete's fault if there's a, you know, there, but then you got to be objective about that too, right? Mm-hmm. You got to say, look, you did this. And I think this is a big contributing factor to this bad performance, but that's usually, that's got to be pretty extreme. And in the last few years, most of the athletes I've worked with, they're not, or in the last decade or so, they're not, they're, they're, they're not the types that are going to do that. You know, there's been a few, uh, there's been a few that come to mind, but generally speaking, they're they're by the time they're at the level I'm work that I've been working with the last few years that I'm not in the hammer in particular. They're they're not screwing around too much, although it's not always screwing around. Sometimes it's just bad decision making. Which well, but, I want to I want to pivot off of that for a second. When you, like you, in some sense, are self professed that you you know you have this kind of dichotomy in yourself and you have this kind of internal challenge and to some degree you got as an athlete maybe you got in your own way of your own success to a degree when you when you encounter athletes like that who who are potentially talented but are getting in the, their own way of their own success do you, do you do you feel that your resume in essence has given you an enlightenment of how to coach them or how to find uh, what will what will sort of motivate them to change direction or path? I'll tell you one thing. I wish I knew then, back then in the day with Dylan and all those guys when they were younger, I wish I knew then what I know now. I'll mm. say that. Um, uh, yeah, I think it's uh, it, it gives me a lot of, uh, you know, it's just experience, right? And it's just a very unique experience in a lot of ways. And, and uh, you know, look, <clears throat> The other thing it's done, other than teaching me to be honest and subjective, is I can smell bullshit at 500 paces, right? I, I, I know when there's, I know when there's, when shit's going on, like, it's just, it's, and, you know, and, and sometimes in some environments, you see so much of it, you just can't deal with it. All. You know, I, I have to be careful that I, I have to pick my fights carefully, or I have to choose my battles carefully, I guess is, is, is what I'm trying to say. And, and, so it's it's given me that uh but yeah i mean i've had i have other experiences too uh that you know have in one or two instances come in very handy with with some athletes that were dealing with some serious serious trauma and some serious i mean i was some of them i'm surprised how they ever got where they are with Mm. given you know the life path they've taken but you know it's amazing how resilient people are it's amazing what you can do for a limited amount of time when you just sheer white knuckle it. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, in those cases, you know, Dan taught me a lot about that. Like Dan has a lot of stories of, uh, you know, uh, counseling athletes and, and, you know, he really taught me, 
and Kevin a lot too. Kevin taught me, I learned a lot from Kevin about how to manage athletes, but Dan in particular, in terms of, you know, he's like, you, you just have to understand where they're coming from and, and just be there for them, you know? And, and if it's, if, you know, I'll share a lot of my, I'm not afraid to share my personal story at all. I think it's uh, I wear, I wear it like a badge of honor, but um, I don't preach it and stand on a, I try not to anyways, but I don't, uh, you know, I, I will share it uh, if, 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 if I need to, it's a tool, right. That I'll use. And, and, you know, I, I always come away learning something from it anyway. So why not? Right. But uh, just describe for me the cake that the, the ingredients of the cake that makes, you know, successful coach in your viewpoint now, after all these years of experience, like, you know, obviously you, you mentioned a, a real, um, immersion in the methodological side of um and that sort of stays true to i think a lot of great coaches especially early on in their careers and then there's this kind of understanding of the the life force so to speak so how, you know what do you see as the those those ingredients coming together that makes a great coach at this point in your life well if we look at the two categories you just sort of described you know you've got the more uh, you know, the more subjective humanistic qualities that a coach needs. And then there's the sort of more technical, if you want to call it that. <clears throat> well, with the first one, I would say, you know, you have to be empathetic and you have to be compassionate, right? It's just, especially today, like I was a big time authoritative coach when I was younger. I thought that was the way and, and there's a place for that. Sometimes, you know, and, and, and in certain situations, uh, it's important. Like when, when you're in a crisis and you, and you, uh, and you've got to deal with a lot of numbers, you can't be, you know, you can't be that, that, you know, the loose, compassionate, soft sort of, uh, you know, taking the time, you know, but, but that's kind of, that's rare. And, and even, even great leaders dealing with big numbers are, you know, find a way, you know, their, their the compassion is a big characteristic with them as well, obviously. But I think today tr trying to understand what these fucking kids are going through these days is unbelievable, man. Like it, it, it's changed, man. And I know every generation says that, but it is way different now. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually, I keep telling people this, but I, I have a, I have a, a new course coming out very soon on my site. It's a sport parenting course where mm. parents can go in and, you know, and I talk a lot about this and the genesis of it is this whole issue is like, look, man, like things have changed, like really changed. Like if you read uh, Gene, Gene uh, Twenge's book, have you read that? Uh, uh, I Gen? No. Oh my God. You got to read that book, man. It, it, cool. It's unbelievable. It's I Gen. And, iGen, yeah, it's uh, it, it's it just it's that whole generation that we're just coming out. You know, my kids are iGens, right? So mm -hmm. you know, it's the first generation to not know what life is like without an iPhone mm -hmm. okay? or 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 without a smartphone. And I see, I've lived this now with my kids because they're eleven, twelve, and thirteen, and mm -hmm. it's a you know the 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 unique forces that are on these kids these days are just unbelievable uh and it's leading to you know all these issues which we don't yeah you know, i'm sure you've talked with many experts on your site about it i mean it's everybody everybody with half a brain can see it so i think i think um 
but, it, but that book puts it all into it's all objective da- data on it. It's quite interesting. Anyways, um, so that's number one. I mean, I think I think you, you just have to take a different approach. I had to totally change the way I see coaching just to deal with athletes in this day and age now, for sure. Mm. Um, and it's not it's not, you know, to, uh, to some degree, it's it's, you know, uh, my go to perspective. Right. It's it's but I still have I have to hold myself back sometimes. Uh, so that's that. And then, you know, and all the other qualities that would you know you, we we classically say a coach does you know, i don't need to list them all i'm sure but mm-hmm. that is the one that i think is really unique and important now more than anything mm-hmm. on the other side now yeah, i could talk all day about that but uh number one is get a system get a system figure out a system of training because to be old school these days is just not going to cut it to you know you need to you need to understand how the how the body works you need to figure all that out so you you have to have a background in functional anatomy you know if you go to the altus you know take the foundation course that's a big package right there that offers all of it you know i wrote some of it uh me pj and uh and dan and i'm not trying to sell i don't get i don't get a kickback for anything i mean I'm, i'm proud of the work i did with that but that course you know, it'll give you all the tools that you need. Uh, but that's number one to me. You got to have a system, a real system. And because there's so, and, and it, that is another thing that's so important today because there's so much information coming out that how do you manage it all? You, you got to have a way to manage it all. And, and whether it's a bonder check system or you're using, you know, or some hybrid of these different, you know, the Cheney methodology and, you know, understand specificity and adaptation and find the best route to, uh, to manage that and to, and to, and to, uh, to, to create adaptation within the athlete. That's, you know, however, and I don't have a more specific way other than trying to sell you a bonder truck. I don't really have a more specific way to say that because Mm -hmm. there's, there's just so many roads that can lead to that. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's super important. Uh, Number two, understand technique of your event, understand mechanics. You have to, because again, things are becoming so competitive and so specialized and so the intensification at elite sport now is so high that if you are weak in that area, you are not going to survive. Like, and it used, it used to not be that way where, um, you know, and to some degree in, in some sports, I guess, you know, if you're, if you're weak mechanically or technically, you can make up for it in other areas. I know in my sport, you just, if you are, uh, you know, we have, we have athletes, yes, competing at the high, highest levels that may not have model technique, many of them. But the ones who are the weakest in that area tend to have the shortest careers or they never or you know, of course, lots never even got there because of it. So that's really important. Um, collect da- data. I know a lot of people, you know, I'm I, I'm I wouldn't call myself a, in the Bonnetrick system is data driven. Right. Because not that you need huge amounts of it, but it's got this unique, the way it looks at periodization is kind of completely reversed. So without an objective measurable, you just can't, you, you, you can't do it to, you know, uh, the way Dr. Bonnerchuk has intended, has intended the system to be done. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. So 
Uh, and that doesn't mean you need to collect every single little piece of data out there, but there's lots of tools that, that are easy to use, like the push band and stuff like that. That's one tool I use. I'm not a, 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 a gadget guy at all. I'm not a technology guy, but that is one I have really employed because it's simple, easy to use. And I've, I found a correlation between uh, performance and speed of the bar and lifting when you account for some other factors like not wave loading, volume and intensity. But you, I think coaches need to, you know, need to at least start tracking and find measurables within their sports. Some sports it's very, very difficult, right? Like the hardest would be, I say this all the time, is MMA. Like how do you track MMA? Like, like how do you know on a day-to-day basis if you're a better MMA person or not? Well, you can, I guess you can do all these different tests and that, but no one's convinced me yet that if you're standing long jumps better, you're a, a better MMA, a better cage fighter, right? So, but that's for them to figure out. They, they need to figure out how to find a way to objectively measure that. And whatever sport you're in, you, you need to understand that. Because until you can track, if not a, if not a day-to-day uh, um, status or a day-to-day measure of where the athlete's at, hopefully week to week, then you really, you're really kind of lost. And I think, anyways, a lot of people may disagree with me, but I, and I learned this through the Bonner truck system. Like when you, because it was designed by a throws coach and the heavy throws are one of the few sports in the world where you can, we can throw 10 times a week and 10 times a week, we can get a perfect, most objective, specific measurable. Very, I can't think of even another sport that can do that, right? Which is a throwing distance. So every day I can tell you how good you are as a thrower, right? Um, because it was designed like that, that system is designed uh, by a throws coach. You know, we had, we had this unique opportunity to study this. And I've done this system for 10 years. And I can tell you, you don't need to do Bonnerchuk to be, you know, to be a good coach. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that there are things in that system that have taught me that I never would have come across otherwise. And I don't see anybody else coming across these, some of these things other than the people that have, you know, looked into this. And I have lots of people that have taken the course on the site that don't implement Bonnerchuk per se, but they've used some, they've learned some of these things. And until you control uh, for volume and intensity and you don't wave load it, you, 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 you know, it's, I just look at it as one big experiment until you control for that. You really, it's hard to establish a correlation between what you're doing and the actual day-to-day uh, performance of the athlete. Let's just mm. put it that way. It's, and cool. it's anyways. So, but that, and, and uh, other than that huge exercise inventory, you got to have lots of, lots of extra. I got that from Eckerd Arbeit way back and Don Babbitt way back in the day. You're definitely passionate, my friend. I can tell. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Well, I, I go on and on about that, but you know, <laughs> so. Well, yeah. to, to bring this thing, uh, well, not so much to a conclusion, but sort of segue into you, t- you mentioned this before, you know, what, what did becoming a dad uh, change in you? Uh, in terms of coaching, no. Yeah, uh, you. Oh my God! Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <I don't> <laughs> <watch it. laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I struggle being a parent, to be honest with you. I, I, I struggle with it. I thought I would be the greatest parent in the world. Turns out, yeah, that's not true. But, uh, you know, I do an okay job. But, uh, it, it, you know, it's it's made me realize that I don't have to control every single situation, although I still try to, you know. Um, uh, so, uh, but now my kids are getting older now. They're they're in their preteens, teens and preteens. And so they're just not, you know, they're pushing back. So I've, I've you know, tried to be much looser with how I, uh, with how I try to control the environment around me. Right. Because, uh, you know, in, in, a, in, you know, uh, in, in athletics or in coaching, it's all about controlling the environment. You build the environment and, uh, you know, you put them in it. And this is a philosophy that I, that I use. This is what I say to the parents in the sport parenting context, uh, or the, or the, the course that I'm developing. It's like as a sport parent, basically you have two jobs. Number one is to get them in the right environment, get them in the right environment and then get the fuck out of the way. Just leave them alone. If they're in a good environment, uh, then, then your job is to step back, not interfere. And so that's what I'm trying to do as, as a parent, right? Uh, you know, and the, the only other thing I'd say is, you know, I wish again, back in the day, I wish I had known then what I know now, and that would be the importance of the words of a coach to a parent. Because back at, before I had kids as a coach, there were things that I, um, you know, I didn't realize how important my, I didn't think my words really meant much to a parent, but, uh, you know, and probably in certain instances chose the wrong words because of that. And, uh, and now I, you know, now as a, even as a parent, knowing, even know what I know in sport and youth development, all that. I and, mean, you know, a coach says something about your kid, positive or negative, it's powerful. It can be really, you know, and so I think that's, uh, that's another. So to, to finish, is your, is your disdain for bureaucracy effectively that you, you like to be in control and bureaucracy likes to control you? Is that kind of the, Not really. <laughs> the dichotomy no. there in some no. ways? No, no, I don't think it's, I don't think it's that at all. What, what, no. what I, I, I hate, I hate the blanket of, uh, you know, uh, I don't know what you call it, the blanket of agreement that comes over a group of people that, that where, you know, you, they, they tend to squash the voices that, uh, you know, the independent voices in the room. Right. Mm -hmm. we see it all the time. Like, like, yeah, just, and I know we got to go here, but I'll just finish with this. You know, we had this big issue with this Dave Scott Thomas thing, right. In, in Canada right now. It's a, it's, it's a massive story. I mean, I got Americans that are following this and sending me, uh, messages and stuff and you know and uh joanne more you know joanne mortimer oh, no, you know her okay. Yeah, but... okay i know her because she was the ceo of athletics canada and in various or she had various positions through my whole association with them and she's she's i think she's taking a pretty good i haven't been following the story too much but uh, from what my my colleagues tell me she's taking a pretty big beating right now because apparently they knew about all of this or they had some sort of evidence and you know uh she's getting blamed for this well first of all i know joanne mornor and i know despite you know my issues with uh with with athletics canada over the years there is no way in on God's green earth that if Joanne Mortimer thought a girl was in trouble, that she would do anything but the right thing. Okay. I can tell you that. I just know what she's like, but I also know 
that what those environments can do to people in terms of how they think, right? They can, you know, it's all about everyone being in agreement and not rocking the boat. And, and I think, you know, I think that's probably what happened in this situation, right? Mm -hmm. Judgments got cloud because clouded because of this, this, you know, this, uh, Hey, and I, you know, I wasn't in the room at the time, so I don't know, but I'm just saying from based on what I know of these, uh, you know, it's, 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 you know, if you're, if you're in a room with 10 Canadian bureaucrats and there's a, you know, one wall in the room is pink, you can pretty, it's a bright pink and all the other three are, are white. You could probably sit there and easily convince everybody that that wall is white <laughs> by just saying, yeah, I think, yeah, it looks white. And everybody, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it does kind of look white. <laughs> you know, you know, it's that kind of thing, right. Where, you know, and, and if, if nobody in the room everyone's afraid to stop saying no you, you you're idiots it's pink it's pink mm-hmm. let's call it pink but that doesn't happen a lot of the time right and that's that's where my frustration comes from it's not anybody trying to control me they never really tried to control me I mean Alex Gardner was the head coach a lot of the time he's a good friend you know he let me be who I wanted to be but when I see that kind of that that blanket start starting to cover everybody it it pisses me off because mm-hmm. the only result is, you know, uh, someone's going to pay that price and it's usually an athlete. And, mm-hmm. and in this case, you know, some, some girl, you know, not, not that it's athletics Canada's fault or anything. It's not, but if they had evidence of it, somebody should have said something and had the balls to, you know, uh, do something about it. But again, well, like I said, I know Joanne, there's no way that she would, she would, there's no way she would, she would do anything but the right thing. She's a good person. Last question. You're uh, you're in UK for the 2012 Olympics, working for the UK, and Dylan Armstrong's competing. How does how does the old coach look across the the track to the the young athlete now uh, not so young anymore doing what he's he he loves to do? Well, that's actually a really interesting story because I was there in the stands uh, yeah. during his qualifying. He almost didn't qualify for the final because he got super, super nervous. Dylan's very hyper, right? And so it was very, you know, controlling his competitive intensity has always been a problem. And if you know anything about Dr. B, Dr. B does not manage any of that. Zero. <laughs> Nothing. None of it. None of it. Zero. And, uh, you know, that's actually, I think, a bit of a negative influence on Dylan and, and some of the other some of the other athletes that were in that group that have, be, that have become coaches because they think, Oh, that's the way I should be. But it's just Dr. B, right. He comes from that, from that Soviet, you know, you know, he had so many athletes at the time that, you know, cream's going to rise to the top. Right. And so that's just, so he, I remember Dylan there in the, it was like nine in the morning and he had two, his first two throws. He was not, I mean, he was, I think they were, I mean, he was not going to make the final. And there were two circles going on at the time, um, as they do. So there's two groups of throwers. Each of them get three throws. I'm in the stands, but I couldn't do anything. A, I wasn't his coach anymore, and B, I had a British jacket on. And if I had a, if I had a gone over and talked to Dylan with a British jacket on, I would have been fired, right? But I'm sitting there going, "Oh my God, he's not going to make the final." And so, uh, and Dr. B sitting behind the other circle because he had another athlete. I think I think it was Justin Rohde. I'm not sure that was throwing there, and he's just ignoring it. He's just sitting there, and I'm like, "Somebody needs to calm Dylan down, right?" 
thing. Now, Dylan eventually learned to deal with this and, and to some degree, like when he, when he was on, he was unbeatable, like in 2011. But when he was off, he was, he was his own worst enemy, right? And I could see it because the one thing Dylan used to do when he was nervous, he paced, he paces back and forth and he shakes his hand. You, you, if, you, if you go back and watch it, you'll, you'll see him shake his hand, his throwing hand, because it's just nerves, right? He's just, you know, he's been doing it since, you know, he was a kid. Um, <clears throat> and I'm, I'm watching this. And I'm going, oh my guy's not going to make it. Well, he manages to get, he was, the, I think, the 12th qualifier uh, on his third throw squeaks into the final and then right after that i had to run around because i sophie hitchin was qualifying in the hammer and i so i was on the other side of the stadium sitting in the front row watching sophie and they marched in, in the you know just after i had sat down they marched the the shot putters out they were taking them out of the stadium they you know they marched them out in single file he walked right in front of me he saw me in the front stands we were like feet away from each other. he looked at me he goes Oh my God, man, I was so nervous like this. <laughs> and I'm like, don't worry, Dill, you'll be okay. You'll be. Okay. And he came back that after that night because that's when the final was and, and uh, was uh, um, actually competed quite well, but he had burnt blown so much energy. There was, there was no getting it back. Right. And I think he came sixth or something when he was number one throw in the world the year before. So that was a, you know, I think he, he, he uh, had potential to be in there as a medal, but he, uh, yeah, it was, it was, that particular instance was was quite kind of frustrating but at the same time I was very 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 proud of Dylan and, and everything he's done and my part in that and I know what my part is and what it isn't and uh um you know just um yeah yeah Gary Reed as well you know Gary what what, what Gary uh, I, I you know in terms of coaching I think I'm probably more proud of that than any other well next to Sophie I think Sophie Sophie I'm pretty proud of that as well because I think that was when I was at my peak in terms of coaching practice uh at that point and um <clears throat> but you know in terms of youth development and that I mean what what you know Gary had nowhere near the talent that Dylan did even though he's quite talented I mean Gary got to where he was on good coaching practice. I think I did a good job with them. And I think Wynn did a phenomenal job with them. Um, and, uh, and balls. And that kid is so tough. It's just unbelievable. And the way he, the way he looked after himself and approached his lifestyle and training, I've never, I've, the only other athlete I've ever seen even close to that, that was that good or close to it was Sophie. Hmm. Just, just perfect. Just perfect in terms of lifestyle management, showing up every day, putting everything into every workout, um, you know, that ability to come out every single day, no matter what, and get the job done and just do it, you know? Um, <clears throat> Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, sir, thank you for taking the time today. Uh, I had a feeling this was going to go uh, nice and long. Did I set a record for blabbing? I must. You, you have. You just broke Stu's uh, record, I think. So, did I? <laughs> Good. <laughs> we should have talked about Stu. I got lots of things to do. Can I? No. Yeah, we should finish with Stu. So what does Stu mean to you? <laughs> He's going to listen to this for sure. <laughs> I didn't know. I did, you know what? The first time I really met Stu, I didn't like him at all. Because he had come to the UK, uh, and I didn't know him in Canada, and he came over to my house one day, and he sat there and watched, <laughs> Where am I? I forget why he was at my house, I think we were having dinner, I think Dan was there, it was a group of, and he sat there and stared at the TV the whole time, didn't hardly said anything, I thought, this guy's a dick, and, 
but then we were on a training camp and we sat down one day and we had this incredible conversation about a geeked out conversation about methodology. And, and I was like, Oh my God, this guy is a lot like I am in that he is so passionate about it far better read than I am, than I will ever be on, on just about everything. And, um, I'm constantly amazed when I talk to Stu about what he, about, you know, the things he's into that I didn't, I just found out in the last year or so. I'll bet you, you didn't know this. Do you know that Stu McMillan has a 22,000 album collection? Mm-hmm. He was a and DJ. A, yeah. Well, he, yeah, I was like, you? what? And not just, but he's really into jazz. And my son is really into jazz. He's a jazz drummer and he's, he's uh, doing quite well. And, and, uh, you know, a lot of people that are into jazz are into jazz, really, I guess, at least that I've met, um, you know, well, the ones I meet now are really into it because I meet him through my son, but, you know, they're, they're into it because, you know, they're trying to impress him. He can walk the walk. I mean, he, uh, he knows so his knowledge. He probably knows more about jazz than he does about training. And that's saying something. I mean, he really, and I find him to be a very, don't tell him I said this, but a very, a very, very intellectually honest person, which is a rare thing these days, right? Like, you know, he will, he will listen, he'll debate, but he'll listen. He'll be fair. Sometimes he's not fair. The, you know, uh, it's funny, like around Charlie, you know, Charlie Francis and all that. I, I've got him and I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start my own, some interviews from free content on my site. He's going to be my first interview and that's going to be our first conversation. Him and I are going to hammer that out. But no, no, I, I, you know, he's, he's become a very good friend. Well, you guys actually, it's funny listening to your, your early life and your story. They're not very dissimilar in many ways. Like uh, you both have an artistic background. You both sort of found coaching from something and, and it, you know, and you are both big readers, big uh, digesters of information. It's interesting to listen to you after listening to him. So it's no wonder the two of you are now friends, which is cool. Yeah. He's a good resource. Good friend. Cool. Well, sir, you have a good day. It was nice to meet you uh, in, in real life and in person. Yeah. I can see you like that uh, singer. So <laughs> Well, I've said fuck so many times in this podcast. You might as well tell. I'm wearing my fuck, fuck sting. So you, why don't fuck you sting like t-shirt? <laughs> it's a pretentious prick. Anyways, I think that's the. Best I also way to... have my my mug. <laughs> I, I, I had these custom made. I did. They're the only ones like it. I saw. I mean, the shirt's not my idea. I saw it on a television show, but anyways, I had to have one, and I couldn't find it online, so I had somebody make one up for me. Actually, right. I should take a screen photo of you because that's uh, that that'll be your your uh, headshot for uh, for for, yes. for my thing. Oh, thank you, thank you. I just heard that. Yeah. Now, 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 Sting is going to make sure that my son never makes it as a musician. I love oh, the police. I love the police. <laughs> the police, different story. Yeah. All right, man. Have a good day. Be good. Yeah, hey, thanks a lot, buddy. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. 
music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.